The Classic Comics Forum Podcast presents issue number 14, Blackhawk by Mark Evanier, part 3. Welcome back to the Classic Comics Forum Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Scott Harris, and in this episode... I'll be once again joined by Prince Hal for the third part of our incredibly long three-part discussion of the 1980s DC revival of the classic war comic Blackhawk. In the first part of our discussion, we went over the long history of the characters and the weird circumstances that led to the title being revived. And in the second part of our discussion, we looked... At the first nine issues of that revival, from issues 251 to 259. Today we'll be concluding our discussion with a look at the rest of the Blackhawk revival by writer Mark Evanier and artist Dan Spiegel, covering issues 260 through 273. We've got a lot of stuff to get to, so without further ado, we're going to jump right in, starting with issue 260, Blackhawk by Mark Evanier. I actually don't have much notes in the way of 260 because it's all shorts. It's three shorts. They're fine, but nothing of particular interest that happens in any of them. It's kind no. of like a filler I issue. Can, I can tell you what I found on them because I you know, had done a little digging. Uh, yeah, you're right. They're just those detached service diaries. And it, it obviously a fill-in thing. They must have planned to do that. You know, they'd commission a couple of stories and then say, you know, if we're behind or to give Spiegel a break or whatever, they threw those in. But Here's the deal. First of all, we were talking about Chaikin last time, and and the Chaikin story in there is one of those smudgy-looking messes that that we were talking about, where it looked like he did it with a a flare pen, or it was crappy DC printing. The other one, one of them was done by a guy named Dick Rockwell, and I had never really heard of him, and I, for all I know, that's the only story he did for DC, and I looked him up, and uh, he's Norman Rockwell's nephew, and he he had been um, an assistant for uh, Kniff for like almost 40 years, I think, doing, you know, Terry and the Pirates and Steve Canyon and things like that. So it was a perfect, you know, segue to go over and do Blackhawk. And the other one was, and it's funny because when I was reading through it, I went, oh, good, there's an Alex Toth story in here. But it, ugh, but Frank Jacoya, Inc. <laughs> and, and I don't, you know, I had nothing against Frank Jacoya, but oh my God, did it detothize it. So nobody know. should ink him except himself. No. No, and each and and to have a story by him is such a little treasure that you just say to yourself, "Why screw it up?" I'd never heard of him being inked by anybody else. Actually, I had the same reaction you did when I read that. I was like, "Oh, all right, this is going to be great." And then I actually yeah. looked at it, and I was like, "Who uh, who drew this? I no, yeah. imposter." Exactly, exactly. Just no fun at all. It must so. have been one of the five Hitler clones who drew this. <laughs> <laughs> Left over from that other issue, yeah. <laughs> well, we're about to get into the Hitler clones in a minute because the, oh, um, there is one thing of, that I thought was a little interesting in this issue, and, but it wasn't in any of the stories. Uh, there was a text feature by Cat Ironwood. And she was a commentator all the time in, in comics for a while. And uh, she did an interview with Eisner, right? Yeah, it's an interview with Eisner about the creation of Blackhawk. Uh, it's interesting because we did talk about that in in the last episode about how Eisner gets a lot of the credit, but later in life he sort of deflected a lot of it um, because Chuck Cadero was so vocal about it. There's mm-hmm. really no mention of Chuck Cadero in in this uh, <laughs> at this point. It's it's just all about how great Eisner is. You know, yeah, and f- fair enough. 
Right, right. And and uh, just for uh, MDG's benefit, if he ever finds this uh, back issue, they talk about Reed Crandall in there. So lots on Reed Crandall. Anyone who feels like we don't have enough Reed Crandall in this episode, you got to go to you got to go to issue two sixty because you hit the Reed Crandall jackpot right there. <laughs> so after this, we get a really excellent three part storyline. Um, starts in two sixty one. Mm-hmm. And these, by the way, these issues all have really cool covers. Uh, most of them, not all of them, but most of the covers don't actually have anything to do with the story. They're just sort of uh, generic Blackhawk covers. Uh, but this one's really cool, covered by Cockrum with a. Yes, it's a beaut. It's it's almost like they again, as I said before, they commission things and say, "Hey, just go to town on this." As you said, just give us a generic cover and it'll work. And they were all it was uh, Cockrum, Chaken, and uh, I think Gil Kane. Yes. Yeah. So in this issue, we get the return of Domino, and uh, Domino has been busily offing a bunch of horny British officers. She's <laughs> killed 27 officers, and her plan seems to be to basically be really attractive, and then they try and sleep with her, and she murders them and gets a bunch yeah. of information from them. You know, fair, again, fair enough. Uh, it seems to work. Mm-hmm. It's a modafferi kind of trick, I guess. Yeah. While this is happening, there's another problem, which is the return of the war wheel. And our intrepid heroes uh, split up where Blackhawk himself goes off to chase down Domino and he leaves Stan in charge of the rest of the team, which so far has been a terrible mistake. Right. And sends them off to fight the war wheel. And in this issue, we get some more of Domino's origin. Again, it's more about the the granny goodness's um, female furies uh, camp in Germany where they're taking all these normal German ladies and turning them into killing machines. Yeah. And we did, we had mentioned that she, that the uh, teacher there reminded us of granny goodness, right? Yeah. It's like a dead ringer. Yeah. I'm it, sure Evanier made that as a little tribute or inside joke because of all his work with Kirby. Yeah, I think you're right. And then at the end of this issue, big excitement, the return of the Hitler clones. Now, if you remember <laughs> when they first showed up, it was just like, hey, that's weird. There's, yeah. I'm thinking in my head, this is Norm Macdonald saying this. Like, <laughs> hey, that's weird. There's, there's five guys that look like Hitler. That's pretty much, that's it. But yeah. one thing I forgot to mention is that when we were going over how great issue 259 was, our invisible man, Winslow Shirk, when he saved Winston Churchill from being assassinated, it was one of those Hitler clones. So when they reappear at the end of this issue, there's only four of them left because one of them has already been killed. That's right. That's right. It's um, and, and it's funny because Hitler calls them the Zwillings, which is, I assume, German for twins. And, uh, you know, he says, bring in the four Zwillings. And it sounds like he's bringing in some either rock group or, I don't know, acapella group or something. And they've lost their, their vital member, the fifth Zwilling. So it's just, it's just jar. It's sort of jar. bring in the four Zwillings. You know, it's like Lawrence Welk bringing on the Lennon sisters, you know, except that they all have little toothbrush mustaches. This leads into one of my favorite issues, 262. 262 is the one with that weird coloring on the cover. And, and the way the book was printed originally, Blackhawk looks like he's holding a gun to his own head. And, you know, I can understand why the colorist made that mistake. It's like, until until you point it out, like, I, I kind of just thought that he was holding the gun up in the air and, like, didn't notice Hitler standing behind him or something. But now that I look at it more closely, I can see that, in fact, Blackhawk's <laughs> arms are chained above his head. So he's got three arms in this. You're right. I'd forgotten about that. It's above the logo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it is odd. The, the one story I had read about it was that it wasn't supposed to be Hitler originally. It was supposed to be, um, you know, Blackhawk's arch enemy, the German uh, von Tepp. 
and for whatever reason, when it was, um, they they mustn't have uh, they must have screwed up uh, at some point with the instructions to the colorist, and uh, they changed it to Hitler's face, and then they somehow didn't fix the the color on the sleeve. That's yeah, because I remember reading the story where they had screwed up the face, and it's funny oh. that they finally you know ran the cover and they they screwed up. <laughs> <laughs> they screwed yeah, it up you know, again. Yeah. <laughs> they, they couldn't get this thing into print without screwing something up. Inside the issue, though, is one of my favorite stories. It comes with a great title. It's called Too Many Hitlers. And <laughs> the team splits up like it's a um, like it's a classic Justice Society story where they all pair up into, into groups of two. Mm. And they all go to protect a different allied leader from being assassinated by a fake Hitler clone. Right. I just the, the whole concept I think is fantastic. I love it. <laughs> and you know the title of the at least the cover it says De Fuhrer's face I think, which was, you know, that Donald Duck propaganda cartoon. It was a Spike Jones propaganda song. So this is Evan Ear having some fun too. So the other thing that happens in this issue uh, spoilers Hitler does not win. <laughs> like all the all Hitler clones get get eliminated. All the allied leaders are saved. Uh, but during the course of this, Domino, who had been captured by Blackhawk last issue, escapes. Of course. So in issue two sixty three, Winston Churchill has personally ordered Blackhawk to track down Domino and end her threat. Meanwhile, mm. Domino has been personally ordered by Hitler, uh, I think, to kill Blackhawk. So this works out. <laughs> So they're on a collision course, and the two of them end up meeting up. Meanwhile, the war wheel's back, and wouldn't you know it, it's Stan who actually comes up with the plan to defeat the war wheel by tricking it into rolling into a really handy giant bog of quicksand. Which, yes, you're lucky if you can find those, I guess, when you have a, a crazy war wheel going. Yeah, and, and like I don't like I'm not familiar with the French countryside. I in my head it's not filled with quicksand. No, no, I don't think wine um, the wine grapes grow well in quicksand. But luckily, it was there. Stan has been having this arc of feeling second rate from the right off from the first issue in 251. So here we are all the way in issue 263 and that arc finally concludes where he's proven himself to himself and to the rest of the team by right. taking out the war wheel while Blackhawk is off on his own thing. And shockingly it's Chuck who has been kind of against him the whole time. He's been his prime antagonist who gives him the big bear hug and says how gall-darn happy he is that uh, Stan succeeded. That's Chuck. He's tough but fair. Yes, sir. Yep, like every Texan. So then we get to the end of the story, and basically Blackhawk and Domino are in a showdown, and Blackhawk is like, I know there's good in you. You won't actually kill me. And she pulls the trigger, and nothing happens, and she's like, Oh, my gun's out of bullets. And mm -hmm. just then, the rest of the team shows up. They see what's happening, and Hendrickson mm -hmm. shoots her and kills her. Right. And, but when they look at her gun, she does actually have ammo. And so Blackhawk is left to wonder whether her gun jammed or if she just actually didn't try and kill him. And right. he's sort of tortured by this, you know, was she, mm -hmm. or, had she yeah. refound her humanity again? Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, exactly. And then there's that gigantic full-page, uh, I don't know, melancholy scene of, of Blackhawk scattering petals into the water in, in memory of Domino. I thought this was a really good arc, and I, I thought this was a really powerful and unexpected ending to the Domino storyline. To me, it, uh, it came across almost like a, a movie. 
you know, it was a combination of Dirty Dozen and um, it just, you know, you know, for instance, and, and Indiana Jones and the uh, the second one there, the or the third one where the girl gets uh, the the Nazi girl swallowed up in the earthquake in the in the in the uh, in the cavern there, you know, and Indy is torn between, you know, is she evil, is she good, and so forth, and so you have this. Uh, uh, a nice little bit of ambiguity there. Yeah, I really like Domino. I thought she was in a nice uh, sort of, again, morally ambiguous character. She's, you know, murdering people and, you know, this ruthless assassin. But at the same time, because of all these scenes of Granny Goodness that we get, you, you end up sympathizing with her at the same sure. time. And you're rooting for her to sort of break out of her conditioning. And... Mm-hmm. So it's a hint at the end that maybe she did get some redemption, but like Blackhawk himself, the reader doesn't really know for sure. Right, right. Uh, my line of the of the story, by the way, is Olaf at the end when she's about ready to kill Blackhawk and he's up on the hill or whatever looking down and he refers to her as Lady Nazi and he'd say, Blackhawk, Lady Nazi got gun on him. I, I, I really, come on, Olaf. Come on. So, <laughs> This guy's knowledge of, of English verbs once in a while. It just, and uh, anyway, it's a nice touch, by the way, that, that Hendrickson keeps coming up as their um, assassin in waiting. Because if you remember, and we talked about this earlier, those horrible junk heap heroes episodes when they were wearing the idiotic um, costumes, he was known as the weapons master. That became his little bailiwick that he was excellent with. Uh, he was an excellent marksman and so forth. So that, I think, it just is meant to be a little bit of a tie into that. So one other thing happens that's important in this issue, and it's, again, not in the story. It's in the text page. There's a full-page editorial from Mark Evanier about an editorial that appeared in the Richmond Times-Dispatch newspaper. And for some bizarre reason, the newspaper ran an editorial decrying the more politically correct version of Chop Chop appearing in this comic and asking them to bring back the racial stereotype version of Chop Chop from the original comics. Yeah, I don't know which I found more difficult to believe, that the Richmond Times-Dispatch would espouse this racist attitude in its, on its editorial page, or that they were paying attention to a Blackhawk comic. What was going on there? You get the occasional newspaper story or editorial on comics, and it's always, you know, pow, bam, you know, Superman is dying or something like that. But this, I don't get it. I'd love to find that. Uh, it's slow news day in Richmond, I guess. <laughs> I guess so. I'm just uh, trying to imagine what the, like the, the editorial meeting in the morning where they gather like all the, the reporters yep. and they're like, so what do we got for the, <laughs> for the newspaper today? And the person's yeah. like, I've got something for you. I'm really offended by the fact that the Chinese character in the comic book Blackhawk isn't racially insensitive yep. enough it doesn't sound like hop sing on bonanza i know and and the like the publisher of the newspaper is like that's gold print it <laughs> it's just amazing to me that that it happened and I, I i'm kicking myself that years ago i didn't you know try to find it somehow of course that was pre-internet days but it's just lost somewhere but and, and, uh, anyway just so on your, uh, you know, he uses this as a big talking point, and it's interesting in the interview that he did later about Blackhawk, he said that he made kind of a bigger deal about this than it probably was mm-hmm. uh, because he was trying to drum up some publicity for the title. He said that DC was not supporting the book. They were not at all giving it any publicity. He was really frustrated with the sales department 
He said that, for instance, at one point he had convinced a comic book shop to have him come in and do a signing. And so he's like, you know, order 300 copies of Blackhawk, of the new issue of Blackhawk. And so the, the company sent in the order. And when they ordered those comics from DC, DC refused to send them the issues because they told the comic store they'd never be able to sell them. So uh, instead they sent them a bunch of issues of Teen Titan. Oh, uh, which was the hot one then, right? Yeah. So Evanier was really frustrated with DC's marketing and sales departments because he felt like they were undercutting the title. So he was trying to look for anything he could to sort of drum up his own publicity for the series. And this just sort of fell into his lap. It tied in perfectly with what he was already doing with Chop Chop, this sort of um, arc that he has to to uh, reimagine Chop Chop for modern audiences. And so this this was just like, um, you know, manna from heaven for Evan Ear. And, and he didn't waste any time in putting out a, a whole full page right. editorial about how wrongheaded they were and stuff. Now that you mention it, maybe he knew somebody on the Richmond Times to Dispatch who owed him a big favor or something. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Now, uh, so in the next issue, the Chop Chop, we're going to actually skip the main story since we're talking about Chop Chop. I'll get back to it in a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in 264, in the backup, Chop Chop, things really start moving with him. Following what happened last time, he's clearly been doing some soul searching. He's really kind of come grumpy and people are noticing. And he expresses to them that he doesn't really feel like part of the team. And he actually leaves the team to go off on his own on a mission to help China. He ends up like following this lead back to London or something. And, um, I thought it's setting up the events of the next issue, 265, which we'll get to in a minute. But I found the the Chop Chop backup story here to be much more interesting and compelling than the lead story. Agreed. Agreed. And the lead story is a really weird parable fantasy. It's one of these situations where Blackhawk stumbles into this lost civilization. In, oh, yeah. In Switzerland. Yeah. And... Yeah. It's filled with people who are blessed with immortality as long as they stay in this magical uh, valley. Mm-hmm. And Blackhawk ends up there because he's chasing down this evil Nazi. And basically the people there are like, we well, don't condone any violence. So if you, you know, commit any violence, um, you're, you're not worthy of being here. And so they put them to this test where they have to grab this crystal. And if they have any evil in their heart, the crystal will kill them. Blackhawk does it. And the Nazi, of course, refuses to do it. And so he like tries to kill them. But the weird moral message of this story, which I found to be a little odd and interesting, is that it it's basically saying, uh, it's warning the reader of the extreme dangers of pacifism, uh, because <laughs> Blackhawk is trying to impress upon them that just ignoring the evil that the Nazis are doing by staying in their little village is uh, it, a choice to sort of allow evil to thrive. And at the end, the, the elders are like, oh, yeah, you're right, we should actually engage with the outside world again and try and do good instead of being pacifist so it makes sense in terms of you know i guess in terms of world war ii being a parable about switzerland but, uh, yeah, exactly and then, you know perfect that it was set in switzerland but i also found it a little bit weird it doesn't quite fit in the tone of the book but it also feels like a message that makes a lot of sense for world war ii but i'm not sure how it fits in with what's happening in 1983 mm-hmm. well we did talk last time about the uh, the cold war which had reached one of uh, reached one of its peaks at that time uh, with uh, the Soviet Union and the United States. I I don't picture Evanier as being particularly hawkish, though. In other words, you know, warning us that we better step it up against the Soviet Union or else we're all going to be nuked. But that was in the air at the time. Yeah, I guess that's... 
like I've, I've read a lot of stuff by Evanier, but also mm-hmm. his blog, which is great. And yes. he's clearly, you know, very liberal. And this to me is a much more, um, yeah. no, I think I know what you mean. You, you kind of knew that the, uh, the Nazi was going to show his true colors at the end. He would be the one to, uh, not seek a peaceful solution to carry this call what you will, this grudge, this hatred for Black Hawk right to the end. In other words, he can't even appreciate this little, um, uh, respite, so to speak, from the war, and uh, maybe, maybe again, it's it's just the the Nazi uh, proving his true colors, and really, there's nothing that the uh, the folks in this Swiss Shangri-La can do against this uh, violent person. That's why they need Blackhawk. So back at 265, here's the Chop Chop storyline comes to a head here. Chuck, after someone asks him this question, like a peasant asks him, why doesn't why doesn't that guy have a uniform like everyone else? And Chuck's like, gee, I don't know. I never, th- I never thought about it. So he asked Chop Chop and Chop Chop's like, yeah, that is a good question, isn't it? Yeah. And so Chop Chop ends up going to Blackhawk and they talk about it. And at the end of the issue, Chop Chop decides he needs to leave the team to go back to China to lead the resistance fighting there against the Japanese. But before he does, Blackhawk gives him his official Blackhawk uniform. Right. A very supposedly touching moment. I, I wonder about this. Evanier seemed to say, if I recall, that you know he did have plans for Chop Chop and it was all going to you know be revealed. But this editorial kind of sped them up. Am I, am I remembering correctly? And then he said, fine, I'll, I'll, get, I'll get going on this. But when, the, when these whole series started, there was no attempt to uh, to make Chop Chop that much of a vital part of the team. And, and he st- sticks out, of course, because of the outfit that he wears. Yeah, it is interesting because early on, uh, someone writes in a letter about it and Evanier basically punts. He says mm-hmm. in the letter column, he asks the readers, what do you think? Should we do something different with Chop Chop? Yeah, that's right. And you know what is funny, too? In those last two issues of Black Hawk, when it uh, finished its original run, when Giordano took them over, Chop Chop, if I'm not mistaken was in his uh, was wearing the the black hawk uniform they it's like they they grew him up and said oh wait a minute we can't keep doing that stupid you know chinese peasant look for him and he and, and so in other words it had already been established at least in print that you know okay we can we can do this he doesn't have to look like you know the comic relief in every issue and uh, and i don't think they made a big deal about it if i recall in those issues they just oh yeah he's part of the team of course he wears the you know the flight jacket and, and boots and the whole deal so it, it, it's. I, I. I thought it was a missed opportunity to begin with that he didn't just say, okay, well, let's. I don't know if you call it retconning, but you know what I mean. And and he did say that these were a whole different set of adventures, right? This was Earth One. Yeah. So he could have just established precedent there. I I totally agree with what you're saying about Evanier, and it makes me raise an eyebrow. Let's say. Exactly. Uh, but with Chop Chop gone, it does open the door for a really interesting storyline that starts in 266, where uh, there's a now that they have um, an opening on the team, uh, Churchill and the, the people in England come to them and they're like, we've got this guy that we want you to, to add to your team. He's like this expert commando guy by the name of Ted Gaynor. Oh, yeah. So he comes aboard and he's like a very sort of uh, gruff, strict military guy, wants everything to be according to the letter of the law. Doesn't really fit in with everybody else. And at one point, the team captures some prisoners or a prisoner and Chuck sees Gaynor just execute this prisoner in cold blood. And so he's like, wow, that is not cool. You know, that's wrong on several levels. So he goes right to Blackhawk and is like, yo, dude, our new recruit just murdered this guy in cold blood. And Blackhawk is like, I'm sure he had a good reason. Yeah. 
I was a like, good what, what the screw are you talking about, dude? Yeah, yeah. And it's so out of place for uh, the way this crowd operates. You know, they, they do shoot guys. I mean, this is it's not like Sergeant Rock and Sergeant Fury where they're forever having fist fights with enemy soldiers. They do they do kill guys occasionally, but it's all, you know, according to the rules of war, so to speak. Yeah, one thing that's interesting on a character level that I think Evanier does use uh, here is that Chuck has kind of been the thorn in everybody's side up to this point. That's basically his personality trait is he's complaining about everybody else on the team all the time. So I think... And this definitely comes up as this story with Ted Gaynor unspools, where Chuck is kind of going to Blackhawk, complaining about the new guy, and Blackhawk is not paying any attention to him because it's Chuck. It's like, he's the boy that's cried wolf, and this is one too many times, so Blackhawk is just blowing off all of his concerns. Even when he tells him he murdered a dude, he's just like, well, this is just Chuck bitching again. Yes, yes. And it's actually a good touch that it's Chuck who reports it. You could either... As you said, chalk it up to the boy who cried wolf or you know, Blackhawk not paying attention to the idea that even a broken clock is right twice a day. So there's a lot of interesting character stuff going on here, and but it's all happening during an actual story. And in the story, having had minimal success with the Hitler clones, which <laughs> weren't really clones, but there were people that were... Yeah. that they were made to look like Hitler. Uh, the Nazis try again by sending in an exact double of Blackhawk this time to kill the prime minister. And they stop him. Uh, and by the way, there's also the war wheels still in a bog somewhere, but um, <laughs> the Nazis have come up with a war worm. I so. know that is a creepy thing. It reminds you, uh, I don't know, it, it reminded me of that famous story in the old, um, I think it was a ghost story comic that everybody always talks about. I, uh, like the horror of Dead End. It was this gigantic creature that lived in the sewers and just came out in these kind of tubular appendages, you know, shooting out from the sewers and everything. Because it just it just bursts out of the streets in, in London, knocking over double-decker buses and all this. It's just really, it's, it's, it's a creepy-looking thing. Yeah. Uh, so at the end, uh, Blackhawk, they kill the evil double, and Blackhawk has this brilliant idea. He says, well, why don't we pretend that I died and that I will take the place of the double, go back into Germany, pretend to be my own double, and then I will assassinate Hitler. And he tries to do it in the next issue. Right. And, and if you remember, Gaynor shoots the Blackhawk imposter at the end who's holding Churchill. And that, that sets off Chuck, too, because he's a man. He was, he was like enjoying. Sh- it was odd, eerie to see him shooting Blackhawk. And it was like Gaynor you know, is getting off on shooting Blackhawk. Yeah, Gaynor definitely has this this subplot going on here where he wants to get rid of Blackhawk so he can take over the team. Right. So issue 267 is is a pretty cool story where Blackhawk sneaks into Germany pretending to be his doppelganger. And he, along the way, he meets this... uh, nice single German lady and they have uh, this fling right? and that helps him actually get close to Hitler and he tries to kill him only it fails because he doesn't have any ammo in his gun. If he had been, maybe he had the, was using the gun that he's holding in his third arm. (laughs) That would have worked better. Uh, And then so Blackhawk managed to, to escape and the, Nazis are chasing him all throughout Europe, trying to get him and, and stuff like that. It, it was a cool action story. Yes. Uh, it did strike me as 
of one of these issues that every war comic has at some point where it's like, don't confuse the German people with the Nazis. They're, they're not, a, not all Nazis. It's like hashtag no. not all Nazis. Not all Nazis. And of course, every, every uh, war comic seems to have one of those issues in which they have a chance to kill Hitler on some secret uh, mission, which whatever, for whatever reasons, you know, seems to fail. Have you ever read uh, the last issue of Unknown Soldier 268? Probably, but it was it would have been many, many years ago. Is that what happens in that one too? No, he actually assassinates Hitler, and then he oh. then he arranges the scene to make it look like Hitler committed suicide. Oh, oh, so in other words, he's the actual reason. I exactly. Get it. Yes. That's cool. That's nice. I like that. The uh, you know the impression I got from this Hitler story too was that it it was a little rushed. I would have liked it to have been a little bit longer. I don't know. It just a couple of these stories later in the run strike me as I, I only wish they could have gone a little bit, been a little bit better developed and been a full issue. That's all. So I don't really have many notes about 268 other than, again, we've got a who's who of artists doing the detached service diaries. We got Toth yeah. again. We, but this, we also get Mike Sikowski in this issue. Yes, I thought that was, uh, you didn't see him that much anymore. No, I mean, by 84, this is a full 10 years after I would expect to see anything by Sikowski. Exactly, yeah. You know, this is the one, too, with these Christmas slash uh, Hanukkah poem story. Oh, yeah. I, my eyes just glazed over. I tuned that one out. Uh, really. It was really it was really pretty awful. I, I mean, I, again, I feel terrible knocking Evanier because I do. I like his his, his columns and his, his blogs. But that one, it just was it was just bad poetry on top of everything else. And it was just going for that kind of sentimental feeling. And it just went nowhere. So the better, the less said about that, the better. Yeah, this issue does have uh, an interesting cover because this is an homage to the classic cover of G.I. Combat 87, which at the time was voted like the best cover of the year. Uh, It's a really famous cover. That issue also happened to just randomly have the first appearance of the Honda tank in it. Right, 87, that's right. Um, you know, you'd mentioned Sergeant Rock a little while ago when we were talking about Unknown Soldier and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting. Some of those comics were still being published at this time, but there's no crossovers here between Blackhawk and any of the other DC War characters. That's a good point because you would think, especially with Sergeant Rock, that it would make a great uh, crossover. It would make sense. It wouldn't be seen as too much of a gimmick. I wonder how much of that has to do with the Earth 1, Earth 2 question. It's always kind of a puzzle, just where Sergeant Rock stories are supposed to be taking place. Yeah, well, it certainly wouldn't have bothered Kaniger. <laughs> because yeah. he, was, he was, you know, it didn't matter to him. It would have been a really, you're right, I never thought of that, but that would have been a really great a kind of a team-up crossover thing. And yeah. a matter of fact, it might have made sense to have Blackhawk show up over in Sergeant Rock, you know, and do a crossover so that, you know, you get the benefit of people saying, oh, okay, I'll start looking at this other other comic. I feel like uh, Haunted Tank would have been a natural fit because we've got Blackhawk, which is all about the airplanes. And if yeah, were... or he could have met uh, what what was his name, Johnny Cloud. Right. You know the Nav- Yeah, you're right. Yeah, the but Losers it's... is another good. Now their yeah. series had already ended by then, but that would have been a great. You're right, Scott. That would have been an excellent uh, tie-in. You know, and they did have some of those crossovers with the other titles. Like they were they were rare, but they did happen where the other characters would cross over into each other's books. And it's kind of uh, too bad that Blackhawk didn't cross over into any of those other types. All right, so after 268, where we have the Christmas tale, you know, the less said, you know, there's nothing really of any interest in 268. It's just, it's fine. It's fine for what it is. But yep. it, nice cover. I like, I like this service, the detached service diaries as backups. 
I'm not a huge fan of the issues where it's just them because I feel like there's a really interesting uh, narrative thread going through the main series and right. it just kind of interrupts them. Right. Uh, with 269, though, we get back to the main storyline and more importantly, this is the most important comic book ever published because it's the this first is? comic book I ever read. Oh, how great. So, so tell us how you how did this happen? Uh, well, it was 1984, right at the beginning of 84. This is cover dated April 84, so January, whatever. Uh, it might have been a month later because I actually bought two issues, 269 and I think 270, yeah, at the same time. And uh, my parents had joined a bowling league. <laughs> and it was one of these things where they're bowling and I'm just sitting with my thumb up my ass for two hours while they're bowling. And there was a convenience store in the same shopping plaza and so they gave me some money and told me to entertain myself and this place had some books that had like remaindered paperbacks that they weren't really supposed to be selling because they had the covers ripped off but i didn't know what that meant at the time uh, and they had a rack of comics now i'm pretty sure that at, at that point i had definitely been you know um exposed to comics i like comic strips in the newspaper a lot i'm i'm pretty sure i probably read an archie digest from the grocery store at some point but i don't i don't have any clear memories of that yeah. i know that i had read like the atari force mini comics that came with the atari video games but i'd never read like a an actual comic book and i never bought one and two blackhawk 269 was my first comic and i can see looking at the cover what convinced me to buy it because uh, it's an absolutely fantastic cover by Dan Spiegel. Irresistible. I mean, look what it's got on planes, Nazi, you know, swastikas, and and that gigantic death's head ghoul. I mean, it's irresistible. Yeah, crushing the earth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just great. Yeah. So uh, this is the story where this the sec this, uh, continues from issue two sixty seven. So again, two sixty eight is really interrupting everything and. It's Blackhawk getting back out of Germany, and he does get out. And it, but when he does, like his new girlfriend gets recruited at the end by Granny Goodness to be the new Domino. Yeah. Bum, bum, bum. We also yeah. get a bunch of other stuff going on here. Killer Shark makes his first appearance in the Revive series. Yeah, you know, someday I don't know if if you, if you go to plays much, but sometimes you're watching a play, and you know, nine out of the ten actors, whatever, seem to be on the same page, and there's one who just doesn't seem to be in the same play as everybody else. That's just the way I describe it. Because of the way he or she's portraying the character, you say, you're just not fitting in here. You're not You're not part of this world. <laughs> and that's how I looked at this killer shark, because this, this is a nice issue, but every time I saw killer shark show up, he's got the most god-awful uniform. It's light green on top of everything else. And, I mean, I, I don't know, Just it just took me out of the, out of the story. Every time I saw him, I don't know how you felt about it, but it was just—it was just too uh, comic booky compared to the way the the rest of the the, uh, the story and the way the, the west the uh, the way the rest of the series had been. Yeah, he's very superhero-y. He he looks like he really should be in the issue of Invaders or All Star yeah. Squadron. And he he yeah. may actually have appeared in issues of All Star Squadron. I don't. <laughs> he's just on loan. He looks like something one of the villains from the old Blackhawks in the early '60s. Yeah, you know, where they you know had a villain of the month, and there was a killer shark. But I mean, no, come on, could you have spared us this? So the other thing that happens in two sixty nine, and this was like I think I'd mentioned last time, I knew that I had, my first issue was an issue of Blackhawk, but I I didn't know what issue it was because uh, I'd lost it. I'd lost my checklist. Uh, yeah. And when I was going back years later and collecting these and uh, rereading them, I came across the one scene that I have vivid memories of, and that's of Ted Gaynor mowing down a whole cage full of Nazi prisoners. Yeah. 
with a machine gun. It just shocked me as a as a well. If this was at the beginning of '84, you know, I always think I've always said that I was 11 when I started collecting comics. That's not true because I hadn't yet turned 11. I was still 10 at the beginning of 1984. Yeah. We just a stripling. Yeah, so that really shocked me. Like I couldn't. This guy's supposed to be one of the good guys, you know. He he's one of the Blackhawks. He's a hero, and he he's mowing. He's just murdering these guys in cold blood. I couldn't believe it. I was shocked. Right. There was that panel too that follows it, where there's a woman looking out a window. And she's just absolutely shocked. You know, uh, she must be a French woman. In the uh, and, and here she sees an American soldier doing what the Nazis had been doing all along. So this story continues into 270. Basically, Killer Shark captures the whole team and then is just holding him prisoner in order to get Blackhawk to come fight him so he can prove that he's true master. Mm. Um, and there's an absolutely hilarious sequence <laughs> in this where the team is in this cage and they, they come up with this great plan where they're going to escape that involves, you know, they distract the guards and they grab this guy and they do this. And it all culminates with <laughs> Olaf using his super acrobatics to leap oh, up yes. over the side of the cage. <laughs> and he lands with this barrel roll, jumps to his feet, and Killer Shark just punches him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like the Indiana Jones just shooting the big swordsman. Saying, I'm not getting in this mess. <laughs> I can take care of you this way. Yeah. Poor old Olaf. That's the highlight of this issue, basically. Blackhawk <laughs> and Killer Shark eventually end up uh, facing off. Killer Shark has got the team eventually on a submarine, and Blackhawk attacks him, and they fight for two pages. <laughs> <laughs> and Blackhawk punches him, and he falls into the ocean and disappears. And Blackhawk's like, well, he's named Killer Shark. He can probably swim. <laughs> it's like huge yeah. anticlimax. And this is what I mean about those stories just racing through. Yeah. Where you, you feel like they, they were just abbreviated at times. It's too bad. Because there were nice touches in some of these. Remember when they're in the cage and each of them is having a little dream in which it's either a, a remembrance of their life before, like Chuck's riding a horse, or it's a kind of a fantasy like Andre surrounded by women in his in his dressing gown. And then you see Hendrickson having the, the exact same dream, except that it's, you know, him in a, in a, it's he in a dressing gown surrounded by you know these beautiful women so it was it, it there, there were some nice touches there yeah some of these issues like some of them are really good all around and some of them are really good action stories even the worst ones have really good character moments but yes. that does happen a little too often at, at points where and i think it's i think it's because the issues are shorter than only 17 pages i think evanier mm -hmm. is using his space for the character bits because he doesn't care that much about the action sequences yeah, I think you're right. And it's not like Spiegel isn't a good uh, artist on action sequences. He does a nice job with fight scenes. So 271, we get the, the climax, uh, the culmination of the Ted Gaynor replacement storyline where we get his origin and it turns out that he has a history of just being um, like a psychotic fanatic yeah. who murders people yep. chuck has been trying to tell them this all along nobody believes him he ga gathers like all this information like he's a private eye about gainer's backstory but they still don't listen to him until on a mission gainer murders not just a uh, nazi general but also the general's like wife and children mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and what the blackhawks decide to do at the end is just punish him by walking away i know what 
was that about? How bad a punishment is that? It's I mean, like I know that it's, the guy's it's a, got an ego, but still. Yeah, you know, he's not the only one with an ego because it seems to be really egotistical of of them of yeah. them to be like the worst punishment you could ever have is to be right. thrown out of our team. I know, and it was to me that was jarring. And and again, uh, I mean, I mean, I guess it would be boring to arrest him. I guess it would be boring to see him be executed or whatever it might be in a, in, a, in another panel, but. And then uh, there's all this cryptic stuff at the end about uh, all his the, the records of his being in Black Hawk Squadron were destroyed. You know, it's like, well, yeah, it's called a cover up. <laughs> you know, could we could we be more honest about it? And then uh, and see, and again, um, and this is where I think not to beat the same drum, but if it had been a little longer, if you remember the way it ends, they say that his body was found among some of the uh, Nazi soldiers who had died during the Battle of Stalingrad or Sevastopol or somewhere. Um, I'm, I'm thinking Stalingrad because it was such a, a slaughterhouse. But uh, And so he obviously you know, went over to the Nazis, and there his, his uh, behavior would be acceptable and uh, even admirable. And you know, he's, he's this mercenary, sadist, psychotic killer just in search of the right place to, uh, to take his talents. And it would have been, I would have liked to have seen that little... Uh, a moment in which you know you saw his dead body uh, lying amongst the other fascists in uh, in Stalingrad or wherever. Yeah. Now, to be fair to Evanier, he did set up this ending in the story where it turns out that in his cadet days, he had drummed someone else out of the Corps by having everyone give the cadet the silent treatment. So I guess True. Yeah. You know, they thought that on some level, like, turnabout was fair play and this would, yeah. you know, really bother him. But like... Right. But that was like for what? You know, cheating on a tactics exam or yeah, something. Yeah, it wasn't for just murdering innocent people left and right. And and that really, it, it leaves a very bad taste in my mouth as to what I'm supposed to think about these characters the story is about. Not the least of whom is, is Blackhawk, who's, you know, the, the team's name for him. He's the ostensible, um, you know, he's the big bogus loony of the whole crowd. And, and we're supposed to say, oh, he was so bad. We're just going to not let you in the club. I don't know. Yeah, I, he clearly found uh, new friends pretty soon afterwards. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so then we get to 272, the next to last issue, the penultimate issue. And it's got a fantastic cover um, by Dan Spiegel of Hitler caught in the Blackhawk spotlight. The, bla the black light? I, I don't know yeah. what that's called. This is the issue where it really felt to me, actually, like Evanier was moving things along. I mean, with the Ted Gaynor storyline, that did drag out over several issues. In this issue, we get Blackhawk's girlfriend from a few issues ago who'd been recruited to become the new Domino. In this storyline, she becomes the new Domino. They fight each other, and at the end, he basically is able this time to break through her conditioning and she surrenders so she can get uh, help from the British. And mm -hmm. I mean, I liked, I liked it. I liked how it built off of the previous domino and everything. However, wow, I was really expecting that to go on for much longer. I think the, I got the impression. I just inferred that maybe they knew the end was near and he couldn't afford to stretch this out. It, it looked to me like it should have been yet one more issue too, you know, and um, maybe they were just, you know, they knew they only had a couple of more issues to put out and they figured they'd wrap up that storyline anyway. I think that was the case as well. This is an issue where I read it and I thought they knew that they were, that the book was ending and they're wrapping things up. Mm -hmm. Although, as I'll get to this when we finish with 273. Uh, I've discovered from reading between the lines and reading a couple things that the book actually wasn't ending. Oh. Uh, but we'll talk about that in a minute. So 273, last issue. 
And uh, it's got a, a cool Gil Kane cover. And what I particularly like about this cover is it feels very much like an early 60s DC war cover. There's so many covers, particularly with Johnny Cloud, where there's a plane yes. that's crashing the water and yes, the pilot right. is like sitting on top of the plane, firing at yep. the other plane swooping in. Yeah, the, the, the plane crashed into the water trope, if you want to call it that. You're right. And they used it throughout the 50s as well. But Johnny Cloud, man, he crashed more planes than... Uh, <laughs> Evil can evil crash rocket ships, you know? He, he got, must have gotten really good at landing planes in the ocean because it <laughs> happened on every cover. So in this story, we get the return of a character. I don't even think we mentioned her because she was in a backup. Uh, this the, intrepid uh, American reporter, and she gets this um, tip about some stuff going on in China. And so then we cut to, it's Chop Chop, and there's a giant mechanical dragon that is rampaging through China and uh, (laughs) that would have been fantastic but it's it's clearly mechanical because there's tire tracks so um, Wu Cheng uh, and his girlfriend sneak in they find like this uh, Japanese cave where they've got the dragon and stuff his girlfriend without telling him contact sends out like a a message to get the um, Blackhawks to come and long story short the whole thing turns out to be this trap to destroy the Blackhawks and it well it doesn't work <laughs> the Blackhawks remain undestroyed. They they uh, defeat the dragon, and at the end, Wu Chang is reunited with the team, and uh, the series just ends just like that. Like that, like that. The end. There's there's a reason for that, which I'll get into in a second. Now, this issue, Mark Evanier told a whole long story about why this issue is called No Information Available at Press Time. That's the name of the issue, and that's how the series, I mean, the story ends with the reporter sending back her report, but instead of giving this sensitive information about the battle, she agrees to censor it and just says no information available at press time. So this is kind of an inside joke by Evanier, I guess. Yeah, it's an inside joke because as part of his feud with the marketing department, he said he used to call their department so that to give them the information of the next issue so they could include it in their solicitations with a synopsis. And every time, despite the fact that he gave them an in-depth blurb, they wouldn't run it. Instead, they would just say, no information available at press time. So he decided to name this issue that so that when they actually, when they ran the solicits it would actually have the correct name of the issue good for him so i had assumed that the series was canceled because of low sales mm-hmm. but at the end of this issue there's a an essay by mark evanier and he talks about this and come to find out that was actually not the case evanier and spiegel decided to leave the book and according to Evanier, the a new team was assigned to the book and had already produced part or all of issue 274 when DC decided that this would be a good time just to cancel the series. Because I guess at this point, it had become clear maybe that Spielberg wasn't doing a movie and the sales had never been great. So they were just like, eh, we'll just end the series. But I think that's part of why this ends on this note where it just seems like another adventure. Like there's no, like nothing is done to sort of tie up the whole run as a series because when they were doing it, they knew that the series was actually continuing and they were just leaving it at a place where the, the new team could pick up for the issue 274. The new team was supposed to be writer Will Dubay with art by Carmen Infantino. I don't know anything about 
Bill Dubé. I don't. Do you know anything about him? He he used to write quite a bit for Warren. Um, you know, wrote for Erie and Creepy all the time. Other than that, I don't think he did a whole lot of DC work. He he may have, but I don't recall ever seeing much of his name at DC. So um, you know, maybe who knows? Maybe it was just something where. He had a yen to do that kind of a series or something like that. So it's, it's interesting that, um, you know, I, I'm a fan of the characters. I'm a fan of this series in particular, the Evanier and Spiegel run. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad the book ended because if there's one thing that I really can't stand, it's Carmen Infantino's art in the 80s. Oh, so you know, brutally ugly. I can imagine in my head what that would have looked like. But, but, and it just, it causes me to be, feel a little like I um, need to lie down because I'm getting sick. Yeah, I will say this from the three pages that they show on that, on that, um, on that webpage, it's not as, as quite as angular and harsh as it later became, but it's still nowhere near as graceful and subtle as it, as he had always been. You know what I mean? It, it, it's 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 um, when you look at it, you say, "Oh, it's not as good as the old Infantino." But when you compare it to what came later, like some of that Star Wars stuff, and then the later Flash, I can't stand it. And at least it's still it's it's not quite as angular and scratchy looking uh, or jagged looking as some of those did to me anyway. I never I never cared for those at all. And I always even when he came back to DC to do the Flash, I was saying, "Oh, this will be great. Maybe I'll actually read this book." Ugh. Oh, hideous! Just oh, hideous. I stand. I know the man's a legend, but uh, I'm sorry. Anything he did, at, like to me, it felt like after he was canned as the oh, yeah. head honcho at DC, and he had to go back to just drawing books. Like his heart was not in it, and it's just yeah. garbage from then on. Uh, so after the end of the series, the last issues cover dated November 1984. This was right around the time when Evanier and Spiegel were working on other titles. They started a series called Crossfire, right. um, that actually ran all the way through 1988. It had started earlier in 84. And this is right around the time when Evanier was was working on Gru with Sergio Aragones. It, the Marvel series didn't start until a little bit later in 85, but I think was ramping up already at this point. So I don't know if that contributed to the series ending where Evanier was just getting too busy and, and he and yeah. Spiegel were moving towards creator-owned books. So after the series ended, you know, a year and a half later, whatever, a year later, Crisis started Everything got rebooted, and post-crisis, it was Howard Chaikin who brought Blackhawk back, first in right. a prestige format limited series, and then in an ongoing series jumping off of that. His series was very different. His Blackhawk was named Jonas Prohaska, and right. he was a Polish uh, freedom fighter, and the team kind of takes a back seat. It's more about Blackhawk himself and uh, his relationship with Lady Blackhawk and stuff. It's more of like a, almost like a... Thriller. It, I, I, I uh, bought it when it came out. I, you know, because you know, you, you say, "Oh, good, Black Hawk." And uh, at, by that time, to me, Chaikin had started to get into the rut. All of his heroes had the same kind of, um, oh, you know, I'm, I'm a rakish, womanizing rogue, and so forth. And um, I vaguely remember that, you know, some of the story was interesting. He, he was really trying for that 1950s feel with the uh, uh, Black Hawk uh, is. I think he's dishonored or disgraced because he has a background as a communist. So it was tied in with the McCarthy era, and there were there were still Nazis around. You know, the world's best villains. Let's face it. So there, were, you know, some sort of a Fifth Reich kind of a thing. Plus, the Soviets are involved, and he's more of a, a CIA kind of an, an operative. You know, he's somebody who not so much that he worked both sides of the street, but that he uh, his mercenary side I think was more emphasized, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know. Sometimes I think it would take a character like this 
tear it down to create another one. Do you know what I mean? It just just make up your own. This character is so well established. I just um, I didn't find it uh, as entertaining a riff on on Blackhawk. Yeah, I, I prefer the Evanier one. Put it that way. Yeah, I do too. So I know you were reading these when they came out. When the series ended, like I was just wondering how, how you felt about the series as a whole then, and like how you feel about it now. Well, I have to say, I don't know. I've I've always had this little soft spot in my heart, not just for uh, Black Hawk as a concept or whatever, but these, these comics that don't always fit into the the superhero kind of niche. And we talk, I mentioned that to you before. You know, these sort of genre comics, and you you just look for them when they when they show up. And during that period of time. It didn't seem to me that there was a whole lot outside of um, of, of uh, superheroes that were that were really being done, and if they were being done, they weren't being done well. And I think what attracted me to this one was that you had uh, Evanier, who even then was a recognizable name. I knew him from the DC letters pages when I was a kid. He's a couple of years older than I am. He was always in the letters pages and so forth. And so he said, "Oh, here's somebody who will uh, treat the concept with." Um, call it respect if you want, or just but knowing, uh, having a feel for the characters and having an affection for them. And I think for that reason, I was delighted to see the series. I liked the Spiegel art. I liked his, his you know, general good attention to, to the history of the time. And I was disappointed when it came to it, because here's another comic that I liked that was well done and, you know, was not, you know, it was, it was flourishing in its, its own little corner that apparently no one else was noticing, unfortunately. And when you reread it now... Have your feelings changed about the series? A little bit. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, I, I think I, I, I don't think I had reread it in the 30 years since it had come out. So, of course, I'm bringing to it a whole other um, kind of perspective. And so and that's why I feel bad, because I do like Ebenezer. I don't know him, but I mean, I, I, I sense him being a really good guy, and I like his writing. Um, but, you know, there, there were problems that we did mention that I... That, were not as apparent to me then when I was reading it, and uh, and of course I was probably reading it with a with, with more of an attention to detail since we were going to be talking about it. But um, no, overall I enjoyed it. I think if if I were to rank uh, Blackhawks, so to speak, or, or runs of them, uh, for me the last two issues of the original series will always be um, very special for lots of reasons. I thought they really did a good job with those. Um, but this one is better than that 1970s version for sure and it's certainly better than the last few years of Blackhawk were back in the 60s good lord so you know it's one of those um, conundrums where you say boy if only Mark Evanier if there were a market for it now what would he do with it now knowing what he does he's improved as a writer you know could it have been a more sophisticated series without throwing out the baby with the bathwater? so but I was disappointed when it ended most most of the series that I've liked (laughs) over the years tend to disappear after you know 10 or 12 issues you say oh come on this one's just getting its sea legs let's let's give this thing a shot but it was too bad and yeah. the, for the covers as we mentioned generally were incredible selling points i would have bought every issue for the cover anyway because in those days you could afford to throw away 60 cents or whatever it was so to speak and say oh, that's a really nice cover and it just felt like it was being done with some some thought and some heart so for me like i i read those couple issues when they came out and then I put the whole series together probably nine or ten years ago at this point mm-hmm. and sat down and read them all at once. So mm-hmm. I experienced it a little bit different than you did because I was reading the entire run start to finish all in one sitting. I'm guessing, though, that read pretty well because 
they were more like chapters in a continuing story than simply the same old story recycled each issue. Yes, and, and rereading them now for the podcast, I have some of the same feedback, basically, that, that you had. I, I think uh, on a story level, I, I was finding a little more issues with it, reading them critically for the purpose of the podcast than I did when I read them 10 years ago just for fun. Absolutely. On the other hand, reading them with a critical eye, I definitely have a much stronger appreciation for Dan Spiegel's art this time around than I did last time. Mm -hmm. Some of the stuff he's doing in here is just great. Like he's, uh, it's kind of hard to explain, but he's got an interesting mix where he, he handles the action great, but the facial expressions and there's just a little bit of cartooniness. Um, yes, there is, but it's okay. And, and he did, I think I'm thinking more toward the end of the run. He did some of those uh, big double page openings to the book on pages two and three of the story. Yes. And there was one uh, where they were um, parachuting into some sort of a Nazi stronghold or whatever, you know, and it was just really nicely done. I mean, the layout was great. Nothing was cramped. Nothing was forced. And uh, your eye is drawn right to the flow of the action. I mean, it's, you know, just you feel like he's a real pro. Yeah. So overall, like, it's a really good series. I've read a lot of DC War books from the 70s and 80s. And it's not my favorite. My favorite is Unknown Soldier. But it's mm. a pretty close second. Like, it's serious without taking itself too seriously. There's fun to be had in here that you're not going to get from any of the other DC books. You know, you're not going to pick up an issue of uh, something written by Bob Conninger and have too many Hitlers, you know? <laughs> so, like, there's just, there's sort of an element of, I don't want to say camp, but there's an element of fun where you can tell they're just really enjoying themselves writing and drawing this stuff that I think well, is absent in a lot of war comics. Yes, and I think Evanier... I don't recall, when, when I was a kid, and I, said, I told you, you, you run into Evanier in all the letters pages, I don't recall that he was much of a war comics fan, and I think actually he said he had never really, he had never written one, certainly. So he, he comes at it from a whole different um, perspective, and he walks a nice line between, okay, making this serious, but also um, realizing that, you know, this is, this is also uh, got to be a little bit of fun. Well, that's it for this absolutely exhaustive look at Mark Evanier's 1980s run on Blackhawk. Hope you enjoyed all three hours of this. And I also hope you still have energy for more comics talk, because next time I'll be joined by Hoosier X for the first part of a two-part discussion of the classic Caps Kooky Quartet era of the Avengers by Stan Lee, running from Avengers number 16 through 28. So I hope you enjoyed this episode, and as always, visit us at classiccomics.org to join in the conversation.